Hello, and welcome to the MKG Podcast, the podcast that helps marketers grow their businesses using the four M's, the right means, messaging, media, and measurement. I'm your host, Carrie Gard, and to help me introduce today's guest, I have with me my partner in crime, Mike Crass. Mike, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. You promised that I'd never come back, and I'm back. You're here for season two. Let's talk about dying media. Media that people are either no longer spending money on or it's not something they're going to be spending money on much longer. What would you consider some of those some of those medias? I would say just from conversations with people in marketing, communications, uh, advertising on, on both the brand and agency side of things, there's a couple couple topics that come up. You know, the first one is nobody ever reads email newsletters. Stop wasting your effort. Uh, you hear things like nobody reads billboards, you know, out of home is useless. You hear things like nobody watches TV because everyone's cutting cords and then spending an identical amount of money on a combination of Hulu, Netflix, HBO Go, and a million other subscription services, um, which frankly, you might as well have just kept your cable subscription <laughs> at that point. Um, so those are a couple of many that come up. And, and I know the first one I mentioned comes up more often than not. Nobody reads emails. Don't worry about sending them because nobody's going to read them anyways. Really? I find that hard to believe because I, I actually subscribe to a couple big email newsletters. One being, and we talk about this on the podcast, but one being The Skim, which I, which I subscribe to and, and actually has over 3 million subscribers. The Skim is a daily newsletter. goes out every day to women all over the country where it helps them be in, be in the know in the news of what's, of what's happening every single day. Uh, and so I find it incredibly useful and I open it and it gets apparently like a 50% open rate. So why are you telling me that newsletters are, are a dying media? Cause that sounds really hard to believe. Our sample size here, you've got the skim, which not to correct you on the radio, I think they're closer to 7 million subscribers. Oh, they're, they're huge. Um, it all comes down, in my professional opinion, to what niche you're serving. Like the skin mm-hmm. speaks directly to a certain audience, certain gender, certain age, certain story types. You also see, you know, newsletters that I subscribe to that are a little bit smaller. Um, this guy by the name of Eric, and I can't remember his last name. He actually used to work as head of growth at Atlassian, mm-hmm. which is a massive Australian uh, technology company. He now works. Um, for another technology company in Chicago. And he has a, a newsletter called TechBound. And it talks about what are the, the most recent updates in Google algorithms and in search marketing. Now, he doesn't have 7 million subscribers, but when he publishes once a week his TechBound newsletter, it's a newsletter that I literally read every time it's published. Um, and you have to see a couple common themes here. They're for niche audiences. It's not just a, hey, we're the skim. You're a woman. Read this. It's actually speaking a little bit more accurately to that, that female audience of a certain age group. Um, same thing with Eric's newsletter with TechBound. He wants to say, hey, you are in the world of search marketing. Here are things you are going to want to learn. They're short. They're sweet. He's not writing novels, but they're very helpful in the process, and that's why I read them. Um, another great example is uh, Crunchbase Insights or CB Insights. It's a subsidiary of Crunchbase, which is owned ultimately by TechCrunch. They publish a usually three or four days a week newsletter 
of all the different places that some of their research is being used and where it's being published and why it's being published. And because they have 100% A-plus research, I want to know which journalists like the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or other places are picking it up. So that's something that I will also read every time it hits my inbox. It's not one of those newsletters that's just generic. They're speaking to a very specific niche, and that's me who wants to read their research. So you're telling me that newsletters are not actually a dying media if you're doing them in in a way that makes sense for a very specific audience. The majority of newsletters are absolutely dying and that there are these niche newsletters that are just standing up on their binary carcasses and saying, hey, well, while everyone else is dying, we are thriving. We are growing our newsletter subscriber base and everybody is reading, everyone is responding, everybody is super interested in what we have to say on the specific niche topic. And that's exactly what Sean Ryan has done. He has identified a very niche audience around men who really like expensive, I might be getting this wrong, but he's totally going to correct me in a minute, but expensive products, high-end products, products of quality. And so he's created a newsletter and has grown it. This is what's this is what's so fascinating to me, Mike. He's he's grown it to an exorbitant amount of people, considering it's a niche audience, right? So it is not dead. It it is very much thriving when you're talking to a very targeted targeted person, and you're delivering them content that really 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 matters to them. And that's exactly what Sean's done, and what we're going to learn all about today in my interview with Sean Ryan. Let's take a listen. Sean, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome, Carrie. Uh, so you built an email newsletter list and with over 300,000 people. And today we're going to walk through how on earth you did that. <laughs> sure. it's amazing. Okay. That sounds great. So, sure. so tell me, uh, you started off first with finding a niche market, right? The key word there that people are going to hear throughout this whole podcast is niche. So tell us how you found that market and why it's working for you. Yeah. So I've been in sales a long time and I was fortunate enough to start working with a company called Cool Material about four years ago. And that gave me an opportunity to work for a men's blog that really focused on upscale men. What I found was it brought me into a different area of advertising sales where I could really focus on niche brands. And more importantly, I kind of was able to turn away from what I had been doing for years in advertising, which was scale, scale and complexity. So my whole life was working with, you know, massive media brands and helping them try to bring in brands at really high dollar value. And here you're talking about brands that almost had a nostalgic way of looking at advertising, although I don't think it's nostalgic. I think it's the most effective way, which was they basically were looking to have their message in the right environment and hitting the right audience. And they valued this synergy between the content and their brand, which is really refreshing. It took me back to my days uh, working in magazine sales, which is aging me right now. But it was a time when advertising really worked well when there was that great synergy between content and advertising. So 
uh, working with cold material, I started working with a large, like a wide range of brands that really targeted upscale men. And it was really great. Number one, they're all brands that I could relate to. Number two, these were brands that weren't spending a lot of money, but at the same time, it was really more transactional. Basically, they were coming and they were working with us and we would forecast the amount of clicks they would get. And if they got clicks near that forecast and they converted into revenue, then they would run with us again. It was really simple. So it took it away from this idea of doing all kinds of custom work, which generally is not effective. It, you're spending more money for a brand, but it's not really getting back to the core ROI, which is sales. So I really liked it. And so what happened was I was working with Cool Material and what, you know, fourth quarter is always the biggest time of the year. And most brands want to spend a good portion of their money around holidays. And I found that we were running out of inventory. So every fourth quarter, uh, we would come up upon a time, ironically, which is right around now, where most of our inventory is selling out and we don't have any left. And so I was turning away advertisers and money. And for me, someone that's getting paid on revenue, that's not something that you want to do. So we were trying to think of like what we could do. So I started talking to a lot of the brands that we work with and I asked them where else they were spending their money. And they kept coming back and talking about email. So I was like, really? I, I mean, I didn't know that anybody um, read email newsletters anymore. I mean, I guess I just wasn't at the time doing a lot of that. But what you realize is that that's a pretty great avenue for brands. Number one, you know, users are signing up for it. So there's intent. Number two, they're opening uh, and consuming your content and your ad message. So they're a very engaged user. Whereas that's not necessarily what you're getting when you're working across, you know, the internet, um, across banner ads, what have you. So it's a really good avenue. I just didn't realize that it was an important one for these brands. And so we then decided, hey, we should try to launch an email newsletter that targeted these same men with the hope that if uh, we could grow it to be big enough, we could get these same advertisers who are spending on cool material to also spend in this newsletter. We would grow our revenue and I wouldn't turn away any ad dollars. It was great. So we started, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I work with a really great partner. He and I see things uh, really the same way. So I was very lucky there. So uh, Tim and I uh, launched this company and we started our first email, which was Elevator. And Elevator is a, um, a basic concept. The idea is, you know, the big advantage is for Tim and I, we're the core audience. So we're able to sort of really look at what we like. And we're able to actually see, you know, that's a good indicator for us for what other people would like. I'll tell you a quick side story. Um, I once worked as an editor for a site called Heavy. I was a music editor. And this was something that I did on the side to learn how to write for search and not to get into big detail, but generally the writers were paid on performance. So writers write for Heavy and they have to write for search so that they rank really high in Google because the more page views they get, the more money they make. And there was one woman who worked for Heavy who made so much more money than anybody else. And so as I'm trying to build out this music division for Heavy and hire these writers, I was able to sit down with her one day and I was able to ask her, how do you do so well? Like, how do you do so well versus anyone else? And she had this great answer. She said, you know, Sean, I watch a lot of TV. I read a lot and I have a lot of questions. And I happen to think that the questions that I have are pretty much questions that probably 50,000 other people have. So I write the content around that. 
And that just really struck with me because that's kind of the idea here. Tim and I are of the audience and we assumed if we could find content that he and I liked, we wanted to believe that there were 50,000 other guys out there that would like it too. And that was kind of the basic of it. And so we set out to create Elevator. Um, we curate content in there. We target this specific niche men's audience, the same one that we're targeting through Cool Material. And we built it up. Um, and in the beginning, we got a few thousand subscribers uh, from leveraging Cool Material. And we found that the open rates were really healthy. So that was just a good sign that it was working. And then from there, um, we started to think about ways that we could grow it to get it to a size that was big enough where advertisers would be interested in running it. What, so, so you mentioned a healthy open rate. Can you give us, it can be a range, doesn't have to be specific numbers, but just so the audience, I don't know that everybody listening is yeah, a prominent sure. email marketer. So what do you consider a healthy open rate for email then? So, so when we, we didn't know, and when we, we, we use an ESP called MailChimp, um, and when we were looking in there, when we were looking at our category, which was like entertainment and men, like a, a decent open rate was like, like 15%. And we're like, okay. But when we started this email, we had an open rate of like 50%. So we were like, oh, okay. So this must be pretty good. I mean, at least in the beginning, right? We have a, an open rate that's much higher. And then basically, as we talk more and more about this, as we grew, we're able to keep our uh, open rate in that 25 to 30%, which is really high in this space, but that's a good indicator that people, people like it. So um, yeah, so to answer your question, um, it really depends on the category, um, but in our case, like 15% was considered about industry average. Wow, yep. and you were hitting around 50%, at least. Yeah, well, we are now, but we were. At least in the beginning, we were. Yeah, so it was great. That's, that's um, crazy. So from a, so you built this newsletter, you figured out your niche is this male audience based off of what you were doing uh, with Cool Material, and then you started to, create this newsletter. So tell me about where you got the content and how you came up with the content because you're not writing it. No. So our idea around this was looking at our own experience. Um, I told you I didn't really read a lot of newsletters, but there were reasons why I didn't. Most newsletters that I would attempt to read, I always felt like were too much work. Like I would open an email from a partner and find that there was so much information in there, I didn't understand. I don't, do they think we have two hours a day to read an email? Like it just it's doesn't true. work. Yeah, it's I signed true, up for so. my own, yeah, I signed up for my own newsletters and I'm like, I, New York Times had a great one about a woman that a woman wrote and it was, it was just, it took me 30 plus minutes to read. And yeah, I gave up. So, and yeah, so did I. So I think I did that all the time. So that was the first thing. We're like, okay, how can we come up with an experience where people don't feel like it's a burden to open the email? Can we actually create an experience where people feel like it's a good thing to get it in their inbox? So that was first. Visually was a big thing for us. I go back to my days where there, ironically, there were niche magazines. I worked for some like great niche magazines way back in the day, Ray Gun and Bikini, ones that no one listening to this podcast would probably ever I've heard of or remember, but they were amazing. They were these small niche magazines and it was such like a great time in the magazine world. And I was like, can we create something visually that feels like a magazine? So that was the second thing that we wanted to try to accomplish. And then the third was to just find content that I had mentioned before, Tim and I would like. But the big things we wanted to do was we wanted the content just to be positive and we didn't want it to be about news because you can get that anywhere. You don't need us for that. So we literally would just scour the web 
And Tim and I were finding that when we looked for content and we shared it with one another, we were sharing a lot of the same content. So we were like, oh, okay, we, we both kind of see this the same way. And a lot of the times what we see, you know, we've learned some since, but a lot of the times, you, you know, a good indicator is that we just still have these healthy open rates. I mean, there's certain content that works a little better than others, but for the most part, what we tend to pick because Tim and I have been around a long time and we're kind of the core audience, we, we do a pretty good job, I think, of finding the right stuff. So that's kind of what we do. So we and where do, you, articles. where do you find it? Do you just simply Google? Do you, do you have certain websites uh, that you follow on a regular basis? Have you sort of gone and done heavy lifting up front to curate the content so you know where to go on a regular basis? How do you find So content? we started out by scouring the web about all kinds of sites that we liked across different categories. Um, we generally have a long list of them. So, you know, we could have a hundred sites uh, that we sort of collectively pour through. Um, there are like enhanced um, RSS sort of like feeds that we can use like Feedly. We've used Feedly, mm -hmm. but that's yeah. not necessarily finding the content for us. It's just kind of a good way for us to organize the content. And then we just go through it, uh, you know, a few times a week. We have actually someone that helps and we go through and we just compile a list of articles that we like. And then from there, uh, Tim will actually go in and find the ones that we use. So Tim really uh, does all of the curation for Elevator. I will find things and put it in there to be considered. But Tim's really the one that does it. And I do all of the curation and content for Shift, which is the other one we have. Um, but yeah, that's it. There's no, we don't have any like predetermined, like relationships with any sites, um, you know, we're dealing with what a lot of people are dealing with, which is number one, we don't want to just use the same sites all the time because then people start to catch on and won't really think that we're much of a value anymore. And two, you know, we kind of, we, we have to pivot, you know, now a little bit more than before because a lot of sites are now trying to set up paywalls. So we try to work with those sites to uh, tell them to give us links that would uh, go around the paywall because in essence, we're driving thousands of clicks to them for free and they would be paying for that anyway. So it's a big advantage for them to work with us. Um, and two, it allows us to continue to work with them. There are definitely some sites that we used to like a lot that now we don't really use much anymore because of their paywall. And that's, you know, it's just the way that it goes, but we're able to find enough content for sure. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's tons out there. And so how, you were talking about, you know, previous newsletters that you subscribe to and how long they were. Do you guys, is there a certain amount? Are you looking at one article per newsletter? Do you, two, do you kind of pick a theme and do two or three? How do you figure out what content you're going to share? No, we, we usually do about four and a couple of images. That's kind of what we do. That's what we feel like is enough. Um, and we, you know, our expectation, my expectation is really, the way I consume Elevator is the way I think most users would. I mean, I go in, I usually find an article or two that I like, and then I like to click on the ad, uh, and I hope that everybody else does. Um, and then that's usually what I do. I mean, I don't, most times, I don't go into Elevator and read everything. And that's the whole point, right? We just want right. people to go in, feel like they find something, feel like they found something interesting, maybe a conversation starter. But my expectation is you're not going to read every article that we pick, and that's okay. Yeah, I love what you wrote on your website where you say it's like finding $10 in your pocket. Like it's just like a nice little thing that brings a bright, shiny start of your day. And, uh, and yeah. Just yeah, yeah, we, nice we have another one. We, we've had another one. We say it's like when someone in front of you pays for your morning coffee. It's the same kind of idea, right? It's just like a nice surprise. 
and that's hopefully what we do, you know? And so that was kind of the idea. Very positive, uplifting, well, I mean, kind of uplifting, but positive for sure. And um, just something where, again, the hope is that when it comes into your inbox, you're not like, yay, and not like, oh man, another email. This is terrible. So, so you, so you do four, <laughs> yep, so you do four in an email, and then how often, you started to say this, how often do you send them out through the week? Uh, we started at three times and now we're up to six times. Um, we, and really, you know, we've just sort of tried. We, we, we've gotten a general sense from readers that they like it and they don't mind getting it more. So, and the open rates of hell. So we've, we've now have it up to, we now have it up to six times, which it just started in six times in October. Um, so we come out every day, but Saturday, uh, Sunday's edition is all video, which is the same premise, but instead of bringing articles, we bring videos, which is fun. Um, and that's done well too. So yeah, I don't think that, uh, that'll be it. I don't think we'll ever go to seven times. Uh, and a lot of what we do too, which we've talked about this niche messaging, our plan is not to become too big that we're not a niche anymore. Like from a, from an advertising standpoint, from a user standpoint, I don't want to be big. We, I, we, we set that up early on that we said, look, we've got to a point where it got too big. I don't want to do it anymore, which is kind of runs counter to people that start companies, right? You want to get big and huge. We do not. Um, if I'm going to get big, it's going to be from multiple niches and not from one giant newsletter. Because for me, having been in this business for a long time, as I was saying before, once you get to a certain size, you're then competing for ad dollars with a lot more competition and agencies and it just gets a lot more complicated and knock on wood right now we're able to kind of circumvent that and just work directly with brands that can make a quick decision because it's not a lot of money to say like okay i'll try you guys and if you work we'll try you again so i used to work for brands where you know that the lead time was six to nine months and they would plan out a year i mean i you know the, the good and bad is that this only works because i put so much time and effort each day into finding advertisers but i have to fill you know, 30 ad slots, what is it, 24, uh, I'm doing the math, 36 ad slots a month, and I basically have to fill those every month, right? So I don't have advertisers that run all year long. So I'm constantly working the, the email and the phones to get people to continually run, but when I do get engaged with a brand, they can make a decision pretty quickly, so it does work, at least so far it works. And this really comes back to your sales background, right? Because you have always, taught me in all of our conversations that it's all about relationship building, right? And relationship building doesn't necessarily scale as a single person. So to really create that one-on-one -on -one conversation and to say to somebody that you hear them and that they're important to you, you need to do that in a, in a very thoughtful way. And so by being niche and by saying, I understand you single person who there happens to be 300,000 of, here's content you're really going to enjoy and I've hand selected it for you essentially. That's really creating that personal touch that you're so known for. Yeah, I definitely, we definitely try to do that. We definitely try to create, I guess, a dialogue between the readers and, and the newsletter, which is good. And yeah, from an advertising standpoint, um, that's true. I mean, I don't, I've always said my whole life, like I'm not a rocket scientist, but I happen to just think, uh, I'm a nice guy and a good guy and trustworthy. And so I generally am willing to work, you know, I'll work with brands and I hopefully get that across that I'm not trying to, you know, put them into an unfair situation. I'm not trying to get them to pay more than they should. 
I generally find that if you're really open and honest with advertisers and you um, share with them the challenges that you have as well as their own, that you can always find a common ground. And those advertisers that can't find a common ground, those are the ones you just don't want to work with anyway. So um, it generally kind of works out. I mean, I, I can tell you with almost you know, 100% of the time, if I ask a brand, if I were to go to a brand and ask them to just pay more out of the blue, they would say no. But if I help them understand why we like them to do that and what we're looking for, you know, they're much more receptive. So it's all about like honest, honesty and trustworthiness. Yes. And even in that, in building that niche of an audience, and like you said, not wanting to be huge, it really comes back to that too, right? Of that open and honesty of like, I'm really speaking to you, the reader of what we have to offer. And I'm trying to make this genuine and thoughtful and I'm not trying to grow because as you scale, like you're saying, if you get too big and you're trying to talk to too big of an audience, then the content becomes too sporadic and then it's not that personalized aspect anymore. That's right. I agree. Yes. So really comes so, back to being niche and not being huge. So, okay. So you have your niche audience, you have the curated content that now you've scoured the internet for and you've been thoughtful and picking and you're delivering it six times a week for articles per newsletter. How did you grow? So when we started Elevator, it was a unique time. I mean, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this, but a lot of our success is really comes from just willing to try and fail and also timing. You know, I would wonder today, actually, I don't know. I sometimes wonder today if we started today, would we have the same success? I'd like to think we could, but there was definitely timing before that, that helped us. And one of the things that helped us is that we, we initially started off on uh, cool material and we got an initial few thousand subscribers and then we started growing it organically. We would uh, try to promote it through some direct partnerships. But one of the big drivers for us is that we, we do participate in email sweepstakes. At least we did. Uh, we don't as much anymore, but it was the right time. And we were very deliberate in who we chose to work with, but we would participate in email sweepstakes that would feature other partners that were primarily male. Um, and what would happen is that collectively, you know, how these sweepstakes work is you have a, a set of partners and those partners all promise to contribute a certain amount of email entries. They can figure that out based on their, you know, what they know about their list. And then at the end, if you meet your minimum requirement, everybody gets a collection of the entire list of emails at the end to add to your own list. And so the big thing, obviously, is that as a user, you know, you're signing up to win an iPhone. Um, you're not necessarily signing up to get emails from six partners. But uh, the way platforms work are they're very clear in letting you know that if you sign up to win, you give us the right to basically email you. And so what we found is that we were getting a, we were getting a big chunk of emails from these sweepstakes, and I expected that when we added them, that that great open rate we had would crater. Uh, because you would assume that most of those people coming in were really just trying to win and they wouldn't be interested in Elevator. But what we found was the open rates were holding. We were like pretty surprised. So we would go from like 5,000 to 25,000 to 40,000 and, and our open rates would hold. They wouldn't hold at 50%, but they were holding at like a healthy 25, 30%. 
So that was pretty exciting for us. So we leveraged that for as long as we could. Um, what does happen though is depending on the platform you're on, you can't work with the same partners over and over again, because even if they're good partners, um, you're just basically recirculating all the same emails so that you'll be doing sweepstakes where you bring in a lot of emails, but a very small percentage are actually new. So now we still do that and we still, but we host our own sweepstakes so we can go in and find the partners that we want to add so that we can get a lot of new emails at the end as opposed to a lot of duplicates. So that's where we focus. Um, the second thing is we definitely work with uh, partners, partners in this space that are willing to um, swap ads to help one another out. Uh, so I have actually quite a few that run advertising with me, but I also have a few that I will call up and say, hey, I've got an open slot. Why don't you promote Elevator and I'll promote yours? And that's another way for you to capture emails. Obviously organically, there's also opportunities where you can build a pretty good share of friend program. There's the woman's email that I can't believe I'm not remembering right now, the massive news email, Carrie helped me out here that has an unbelievable share of friend program and they grew to yep. millions of subscribers. She knows. Yeah, that, is that uh, it? No, the name has slipped my no. mind too, but uh, I actually subscribed to there for a long time, but it's true, the referral program was great and you basically yeah. got flag from their own brand, which was something people wanted to be a part of. It just felt like you were part of their community yep. and part of what they were building. And that yes. was a really interesting way of doing it, is, is that piece of community. So there's that. And then obviously, look, there's the advantage of buying through social media. Um, if you can work with someone as talented as you guys, for instance, and you're able to buy that um, at a very good and get a good CPA, um, that's definitely something you could do as well. We definitely test different things there. Tim has a, my partner, Tim has a, a strong background in e-commerce because he owns a store through Cool Material. So we'll leverage uh, social media like Facebook and we'll try to hit a targeted CPA um, in order to acquire an email. And so it's, it, you know, it's, a, it's always a mix, right? I mean, you know this, right? The, the more niche you come, the higher the cost. So we have to sort of figure that out. And what we'll do is we'll segment out those emails from our other list and then we'll just measure how effective they are in terms of open rate. And if it's good, then we sort of roll them into our email list. And then we're constantly pruning our list. You know, we're getting rid of a lot of people that haven't opened in a long time and then we're sort of re-adding. And that's one of the big challenges you have in this space too, is that, you know, you want to constantly bring in new subscribers because um, it's, it's just healthy for your business. It's healthy for the brands that you're bringing in. And so we're always looking for new ways, but those are basically the ways that we do it. We do it through just organically, through partnerships, through sweepstakes and, you know, just hard work. The point is, you do it. I think that's the point. I think, you know, we talked about this earlier, is that I think a lot of people um, do not do this simply because you, you just, you just, you think of so many reasons why you shouldn't. But, you know, failure is the greatest lesson of all. You just need to fail. You need to get in and fail and learn and fail and learn. And the next thing you know, you're building something. And if you just keep doing it day after day, it works. I mean, none of what we did was rocket science, but we just committed to doing it day in, day out, and we would just get the growth and you would get the momentum. And we've had lots of failures. And like, again, I always say failure is the best lesson. Um, and so you learn from those failures and you pivot, and then that's how it works. But you, you know, you just can't succeed if you don't try. It's too easy for anyone to sit there and say why they won't, they shouldn't do it or why it wouldn't work. We can all come up with that narrative pretty quickly. But the fact of the matter is, if you just try, 
you're, you're going to succeed in some manner. You're going to succeed in building a list that's great, or you're going to succeed in the lessons that you learn. So maybe this lesson doesn't work, but the next one does. So you just got to get in there and do it. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely does sound time consuming, at least in the front end of figuring out what the systems are, what your niche audience is, what the template of the email looks like, where you're going to find and curate the content. You've also mentioned even while you guys don't write your own, you know of people who write their own and yes. how powerful that is. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the difference between curating like what you do and versus actually writing like some of the people you know? It's so interesting. Um, I think we were fortunate in that we have, you know, created an identity for who we are. So um, users like us, but we do curate content. The, the higher risk, bigger reward is if you can create your own voice. I mean, it's absolutely true, right? If you're writing your own content and you're building up a significant list, right? I mean, that list is that much more powerful because they're not going to find what you have anywhere else because you, it's your own voice. I'll give a small plug to an email that I do actually like. Um, it's called The Daily Valet. And that one is actually a writer. He's a terrific writer who goes in and he will just find four or five interesting things that are happening in the world. Some can be news related. Some can be just sort of pop culture related. Um, and he will actually take that and write it in his own voice. And it's this great daily informative email that if you... I, I mean, I really, really like it. And I, a lot, a lot of that has to do with his voice. So because it's his voice and because he's written this, I'm going to be that much more loyal because I know that I won't be able to find that anywhere else. So if you can put in the time and effort and resources to write your own or put your own spin to it, I mean, that's absolutely a great value and something that will create an even more engaged subscriber base for you. So, um, yeah, I don't want to say that what we did is, you know, what we do, uh, I think works. We just happen to find the right mix, but there's a lot of value in emails like the Daily Valet or uh, the Morning Brew or uh, what we were talking about before, which, but all of those emails all really establish their own voice. And that's why they see a lot of success. And it really comes down to what resources you as the brand have and what makes the most sense for your niche audience. I mean, if you're talking, it sounds like for you specifically, you're a very niche audience where the contents are, there's already a plethora of content out there that's easy to curate. But if you're in a niche that is maybe new or uh, is so niche that there just isn't a lot of information out there, then it's writing your own content might make sense. It really depends on taking a stab at that first piece, which is figuring out who your niche audience is and then figuring out what's out there in the world and maybe what gaps there are or what information already exists. I think also too, it's goal setting and expectations, right? If you come out of the gate and you want to start a new email and like women's tech and you just have in your mind that it's going to be huge and you don't set realistic, manageable goals, um, I think that's a recipe for failure. You could set goals to say like, you know, again, just very small manageable goals. If, if time is an issue for you, if resources are an issue for you, you can absolutely structure any uh, email endeavor around the right goals and make it work, right? Like, yeah. Carrie, the point is like, you if, if you don't have enough time to write four articles, then write one article and just start there and get your voice and get the feedback and then build off of that It's and, and make your timeline longer. And don't, you know, 
don't set goals where you feel like you need to be at a certain size or a certain length in your email by a set amount of time. Just give it more time and be willing to, you know, just stay the course. So I don't, so I, I think the, the answer here is that I don't necessarily think that anyone doesn't have the time. I just think that you just need to structure your expectations and goals the right way. And like we said before, just, just start, just start doing it. And figure out why, why it is that you're actually doing this. As a yes. Brand. I mean, for you, it was personal. You just really connected to this and it was something you really loved doing and you happen to figure out how to monetize it. But for a brand who d who's not necessarily going to monetize it, who's going to use it as an avenue to bring their product to a new audience or to a niche audience, it's figuring out what, why you're doing it and why that makes sense. and and building from there in terms of goals. I think that's such an important Yeah, point. and the other thing too is to think about brands, right? So you're a brand and you sell a widget, right? And when you sell that widget to someone, you ask them for their email and you compile this great list, right? So you have a huge list of subscribers that have all bought your widget. And then basically, what do you do with that list, right? So if you're not giving them value and you just keep going back to them to buy the next widget, like they're gonna unsubscribe. but there's just like tremendous opportunity where you've already established some uh, basically positive vibes between you and that brand because they've already brought your product that you could be delivering really good content to them that's related to that widget. Does that make sense? So you as a marketer who already has a list can just create more value for the subscribers you already have. So there's just so many brands out there that have a big list. I have so many friends that work for companies that have huge lists and they don't do anything with them. And if they were just to create content and value, they could hold on to those subscribers. They could create a dialogue with them. And then ironically, they could then have even a better chance to reintroduce widget number two or widget number three to sell to them. Um, and I think that's or something- Or forward that it to a, a friend. And then all yeah. of a sudden you're growing by referral as well. Yeah, and it's and it's not and, you know it's not costly to do something like that. It's not creating like a million dollar commercial. It's putting time into just create a stronger dialogue with your subscriber base. And as you said, Carrie, just encourage them to share and just, you know, keep that flame, keep that flame between you and that subscriber. And you can wind up driving a lot more value out of that in the long term if you just give them some value now versus just trying to sell them again and again. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Sean. This was fantastic. And I feel like for MKG, I'm going to go create our own newsletter. Nice. And uh, well, thank this you so fun. much. This was great. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. All right. No problem. So that was my conversation with Sean Ryan. Mike, what was, was there anything that really stood out to you that was different than what you've seen happening in the world of, of newsletters? other than obviously being part of a niche audience, but in terms of the way Sean is doing this differently. You know, I'll come back to a comment I made in the intro of, oh no, all newsletters are dying. And interpret from that, well, if they're dying, maybe we, sh we shouldn't send them anymore. Uh, Sean actually said, no, you should send more newsletters. We actually send six a week. And I think Sunday was the big video one where they do a four pack of videos their subscribers to to read or i should say to watch so i you know things that i believe are interesting to hear are number one if you've got a great newsletter with followers who are a big fan of it send it more often right 
Don't just send it once a week, once a month. Send it six times a week. The other thing that popped up is, you know, Sean and his partner are doing what I'm calling, it's my word, it's more of a four-pack setup. So four stories in each send. That's not a huge, that's not a huge amount of content to read. It's also very accessible. So you think about that user experience for their subscribers and they're not being inundated with, you know, 19 articles that are, are being, you know, shoved in their face, which it's like, even if I wanted to read all 19, I don't have time to do that. So it's just not going to happen. Um, they're trying to make it a little bit more accessible. They're trying to say, Hey, we're going to send it to you more often. We're just going to send fewer stories so that there really are the one, two, three, four stories that if you could squeeze these into your day, we think you'll really enjoy it. So that, those were two things that really jumped out at me is just them learning from that user experience of how often should we send this? What should the content be? And, and now, like I mentioned earlier, they've got the Sunday video four pack where it's, you don't even have to read anything. You just, you could listen, you could watch, you could do a combination of both. It makes it a lot more accessible. And before I pass the, the microphone back to you, you know, we were talking earlier today about a physical newsletter that a company sends out. Um, we're both subscribers to it. And it's probably front and back, you know, 14 pages long. I mean, it just feels like you open this thing up, you feel it in your hand, and it's heavy. And you open it up and you're like, oh man, it's a small font. Like, even if I want to read all this, I just can't. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's with the best of intentions. I, I love the company that produces it. I'm actually a big fan of them um, and of their leadership team. It's just, it's very inaccessible. And so that was interesting to hear Sean say, hey, you know, we, we want to include less in each send. We're just going to send it more often. And I love that because it does, it does make it accessible and easy to read. Uh, unlike the the other one we were talking about, the physical one, it is very overwhelming and daunting. But when you pr- approach a client, as we do all, on a regular basis, as an SEO agency, we, we talk to clients all the time and we're constantly like, you need more content, more content. You need to produce more content. And when you're not writing content, you need to write some more. <laughs> they, they agree with us, but their resources are incredibly strapped. So as much as they would love to be producing more content, they don't necessarily have either the, the, men, the manpower to do it or, or the money to go outsource it. And I think what's also interesting about the way that Sean and his business partner approach this is that they're not necessarily writing the content. They're finding the information pertinent to this specific audience and bringing it to them from what other people have created. And I think that's really powerful because it gives an outside perspective of not just what they think is important, but what other people are saying. And I think even in, in what our clients are doing, this is so, this would be, this is what also makes it accessible in terms of production is you don't have to necessarily go write all the content either. We do something similar uh, where we use a tool called rasa.io that actually creates a newsletter for us uh, in, in, in bringing in links of uh, websites that we and our experts read. And so then the newsletter just gets auto-created based off of what's happening on those websites. And so as easy as a newsletter is to put together, it's even easier when you don't have to feel like, oh man, where's all this content going to come from? And how am I going to write it all? And how am I going to do it six times a week? And that's actually not the case. And it's actually a lot, a lot more accessible than, than you can even imagine. That tells a really 
interesting thought leadership story, right? If you're truly interested in your subscribers, here's the question. Do you really need to shove all of your own content down their throats and into their eyeballs? <laughs> maybe, maybe you're, maybe you are the, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, up in Cambridge and you just have the greatest content out there. Total possibility. I would say for most brands, they would benefit from having some third parties in their newsletters and sharing that information to say, hey, you know, subscribers, fans, customers, partners, uh, investors, you know, analysts, all you people out in the world that subscribe, here's what we're interested in. We might have written it, we might have researched it, we might have developed it, or we might not have. And we want to, we want to be a champion for other companies and other content producers and publishers out there in the world. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think of you can have this mix of both owned and curated content. You can just do straight curation the way that the group uh, that Sean runs it uh, does it. Or you, you could do, you know, combinations of all of the above. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see what they've done and, and how their readers and subscribers have actually embraced just a pure curation model. I would say it's almost like what happened with Reuters and the Associated Press. Um, but in a newsletter fashion, you know, there's so many news stations, whether they're TV, radio, small newspapers, large newspapers, et cetera, that if you read where that story came from, a lot of times it's an AP source and nobody really looks at that byline. And, and what Sean and his partner have done is they've said, hey, you know, we can do the same thing in a newsletter. We can be that AP source that people are, are grabbing from and we can gather up all those sources and, and give them to you in a very accessible format. So true. Well, Sean, if you're listening, thank you so much for joining us. It was uh, awesome to talk to you about what it is you got going on from a newsletter standpoint. If you'd like to learn or actually subscribe to Sean's newsletter, it's called getTheElevator.com. Check it out. Uh, thank you for joining me on the MKG podcast, Mike. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to having you back. Can't say I didn't invite you. Great being here for the intro and outro. And we'll see if I make a reappearance in season three. I can guarantee it. Thank you for listening to the MKG podcast, the podcast that helps marketers grow their business using the four M's, the right means, messaging, media, and measurement. I'm your host, Carrie Gard, and until next time. <laughs>